Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Jennifer Lee. I'm pediatric gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital, and today I am joined with my co-host, Peter Liu. Hey, Hi, Peter. Jen. How are you? Ah, doing great. So today's episode is about picky eating, oh, which- man. I know, right? We've talked a lot about this um, as far as our own kids. <laughs> I mean, I got that picky eating even before I had a child that it's a stressful thing. But man, it is, uh, it's hard not to get fixated on things if your kid is not eating exactly the way you want them to. Yeah. So super stressful when your kid is picky. Would you classify your kids, with, uh, Emma, as a picky eater? I mean, as we talk about in the episode, I think I just don't know as a, I only have one kid. Okay. You have three kids. I have no idea what normal is and and not. And like, you know, Emma is, uh, she's a little on the small side, but her weight is like appropriate for her height. I don't know. I like oscillate between uh, panicking and (laughs) panicking that she has like 50 micronutrient deficiencies and, uh, and then being like, ah, she's fine. Who cares? Yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think I ever had like a true picky eater, but we were also like Mark and I also like to eat delicious food. So they're like, (laughs) maybe he and I are a little bit picky. (laughs) Maybe you need to counsel people. You just need to choose more delicious food. That's the problem. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a good idea. (laughs) Oh man. But I think it's also, I just have to like accept that she will not eat the same thing consistently. It's like what they, what do they, what do they say? Like, you know, you choose when or whatever you feed. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like you can't choose how much they eat. You just like give it to them and it's fine. She's fine. Yeah. She's yeah. Fine. They just eat what we eat, but you know, <laughs> it's always delicious. So it's like <laughs> anyway. eat a vegetable, you know, like once a week, it's fine. And uh, I don't know now in clinic though, for sure. I have no judgment for like any parent who's like, oh, I <laughs> I can only yeah. get them to eat chicken nuggets. It's like, oh, yeah, I know what that's like. Well, and you want, I mean, and and I think that's the best. Like, Dr. Gaudet is such a good person to have for this episode. <laughs> yes. uh, so, Dr. Praveen Gaudet, he's a pediatric gastroenterologist and one of our colleagues at Nationwide Children's Hospital. He's actually the director of the nutrition and feeding programs here um, and a clinical professor at The Ohio State University. And yeah, like I said, we talk about picky eating and he is just, he has so much good and practical advice. Oh, yeah. And honestly, even like for when he first came here from Milwaukee, it's like we need to have this guy on for this topic. It's like such a, a huge concern that I feel like a lot of GI docs, well, as we talk about, like, you know, we don't really get any formal training in how to feed a toddler. So it's kind of nice that Dr. Gooday walks us through so we know how to do it for ourselves and for our patients. Well, and also when additional workup and that kind is needed, yeah, but yeah, 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 yeah. we'll have to talk about that in that. Episode. But also practical tips. Honestly, after this interview, <laughs> man, I like we have totally changed up how we feed Emma. Now, are you I, serious? Yeah. Well, yes, because I uh, I like always have the TV on, and so now I turn it off briefly during meals. Briefly. Uh, she used to stand on this like I don't know what it's you know like a little standing thing so they can like. I forget what it's called, like a mommy's helper. I don't know. Like she used to stand yeah. when she ate, which I started to realize maybe that's not the best way to eat. Hmm. And uh, yeah, there's multiple modifications we've made. And I think maybe she's eating a little better. 
Hey, there you go. Veggies twice a week. I'm sure it'll change, you know, immediately. (laughs) Anyway, such such good tips. Ready? Shall we go? On to the show. show. Wow, we're just in sync. Dr. Praveen Gaudet, so happy to finally have you on Battle Sounds today. Well, it's great to be here. I've heard so many episodes. It's exciting to be a guest. We've been wanting to have you on for a very long time. I feel like we say that for a lot of people, but you, for real, we did. Mostly for uh, personal advice on picking <laughs> But not the, the others. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, well, we won't say who was real or not, but I Dr. Gooday was a real one. I think I should take that as a compliment. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So it has been so fun getting to know you over the last year or so since you've been in Columbus. But for those of our listeners who don't know you, How would you describe yourself in one sentence? I decided to start off with a list of awful alliterations. Yes. I am a nutrition nut. Uh, I could either go with uh, language lover or lifelong learner. And finally, puzzle person. So that's me. Like puzzles, like, uh, like... Any kind of puzzle, not not the ones that require fitting with your oh. hands. These are all <laughs> okay. mental puzzles, so... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as as you guys know, I've spent the last five or six years learning Spanish. Uh, mm-hmm. I made all kinds of puzzles. And if I see a puzzle, I really want to solve it. And the harder, the better. I feel like that fits but with he, your uh, trivia passion. Correct, yes. Well, I, and you're amazing. I mean, Rajitha and I sat next to you on the airplane and... This was the first time ever that we got the highest level for the New York Times puzzle, uh, Bumblebee. What was that thing? Oh, <laughs> oh the spelling puzzle. bee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the yeah. spelling bee. <laughs> yes, yes. Because... The, those are my kinds of puzzles. <laughs> I feel like all the New York Times things, the connections one. Correct. Yeah. I, I do all of them. Yeah, I do all of them. So for those who don't know, we will occasionally go to a, a local trivia competition at the bar, and uh, Dr. Gooday is our ringer. We actually have never left there without having won at least one round. Yeah, we used to do this in Wisconsin too, and uh, typically we would finish number two, which is appropriate Ooh. for a gastroenterologist, yeah. I feel like. So, yep. Was your team also 15 people? Or? Uh, <laughs> no, not 15 people. Usually four to eight. Yeah, so more appropriate, a, I feel like. There should be an asterisk next to our, uh, next to our wins. All right. So uh, so you've been here now for a, couple, a year and a half? Yeah. A year, a year and, and a half. half. Yep. Um, so somewhere to visit our great city of Columbus. What do you recommend they do or eat or see or whatever? Well, I'm also an art aficionado. So... I came up with the conservatory. I okay. don't know how many of you have been to the conservatory, but it has one of the largest collections of chihulis. In the U.S., chihuli is a major glass artist, and along with plants, which my wife is an avid gardener. So we really like the conservatory. And seeing some of those chihulis in between those plants is quite magical. Apart from that, Short North uh, High Street, where there are restaurants, shops, art galleries, that kind of stuff. And then if you have little kids, Kosai and the zoo, uh, I'm waiting for uh, my friends with kids to visit me before I go to those places. (laughs) And finally, since this is an episode about food, we have 
two major ice cream uh, thingies in Columbus. One is Jenny's and the other is Grater's. So you should try both. The Grater's mm. is more traditional. Jenny's is crazy flavors. Some people like one versus the other. I kind of like both. Excellent. Definitely Grater's. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, we don't have to go down this road. We don't have to go this road. Grater's is Cincinnati. That's like not... Ah. Uh, oh, man. So, um, okay, so today we're talking about picky eating. And before we begin, can you tell us how you became a nutrition nut and how you became developed your interest in feeding disorders? So a lot of things in my life have fallen into my lap. And uh, nutrition fell that way too. I did not specifically focus on nutrition during my fellowship. And Colin Rudolph, my first uh, boss when I started a faculty position, wanted me to run the nutrition program in Milwaukee. So I developed that interest and over time I became a self-taught nutrition expert. And then when the feeding program, there's a good feeding program in Wisconsin, um, the head physician left, I actually volunteered to become the, the, the lead of that program. So that's how I developed my expertise in feeding disorders too. Awesome. Yeah, okay. So someone just said, you should do this, and then the rest is history. In a way, in a way, yes. Uh, it's kind of odd, but that's what happened to me. I think I think people should think about that. When mm-hmm. they are given something and it's not really in their life plan to do it, sometimes you should take it up. Yeah. Maybe he saw something in you. He saw the nutrition nut in you. And, uh, uh, yes, <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah. All right. So today uh, we're going to talk about a, I think, a hugely um, necessary and I think it's a very popular topic, picky eating in young children. So feeding difficulties, uh, it's hard to really know what's abnormal without first knowing what's normal. Can you walk us through a typical child's feeding developmental stages when it comes to growth and eating behaviors? So there's, there's a lot. I'm going to focus on those that are relevant to picky eaters. Mm-hmm. The first thing to know is that the sucking reflex in babies disappears around two to four months of age. So when you see a baby and parents say, my baby was great for the first two months and then stopped eating, that is a sign that there is something uh, CNS-wise that is likely wrong with the baby. So, And you should be able to explain it to the parents that this is what happened. The second thing that's really important is that somewhere between 6 and 10 months, babies need to be introduced to what are called lumpy foods. And there are data suggesting that if you miss this important developmental window, kids are more likely to be picky eaters. The third thing is that uh, babies will accept almost anything until about 12 to 14 months. Most babies are programmed to eat pretty much everything. And the picky eating and the refusals start around 14 months and are uh, at their peak around 20 years. Ultimately, picky eating can last up to six years or eight years, depending on which uh, reference you read. The other thing that really uh, kills us is that we were programmed to live in caves and things like that. So uh, we're all born with a sweet tooth and sweet and fat are always preferred by everybody from birth. Uh, Some babies more than others have to be taught how to deal with bitter tastes. And uh, unfortunately, vegetables, many of them have an inherent bitter taste or a bitter aftertaste. So those are the big things to think about with regard to feeding milestones. Wow. I wish we talked like three years ago. 
So 20 months, as you said, is that's kind of where it peaks. Correct. As long as you keep introducing the foods and not give up, right? Yeah. So there are data showing that if you introduce a not so wanted food at least eight times, uh, it is more likely to be accepted. Hmm. But then eight is not a magic number. You just keep introducing it. I think all of us probably dislike at least one thing, right? And if a, if a child dislikes one thing, say broccoli or Brussels sprouts, that's okay. But if it starts expanding to a million other things, that's when it, it is a problem. It's going to be hard not to make this like a personal consultation for our own <laughs> children. But uh, but I will say well, like the yeah. first, the, what you said about, you know, uh, babies eat everything, you know, until like, you know, 12 to 14 months. Man, I thought we were doing such a good job. We're like, oh, Emma will eat any vegetable. She eats like everything. And then it all came to a crashing halt. <laughs> so That's I, so funny. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the two preventive things are breastfeeding because babies taste stuff through breast milk. Mm-hmm. And uh, if if you are garlic lovers and the mom consumes the regular amount of garlic, which is a lot for her, <laughs> uh, then the baby comes out primed to... Uh, through the amniotic fluid and then through the breast milk to eat garlic. Oh, so that's that's really important. And the second thing is uh, is lumpy foods at that key time. And the third thing is to persist. Hmm. So I think the lumpy food thing is really interesting. So I'm going through this right now because my daughter is six, almost seven months. And we just gave her some lumpy foods the other day. And it's just so funny to watch her face because she just makes this like (laughs) kind of look and we just smile at her and we say, no, it's okay. Keep going. And then she loves it. Right. But it, you know, that first reaction that she has is like almost disgust. So if I, and so what I'm hearing is just keep giving it because then they'll, you know, then eventually get used to it. If tongue protrusion is a persistent event, then the baby may not be ready. Some tongue yeah. protrusion in the beginning is a part of how life operates. And getting past it is absolutely okay. We just started and I feel like there's like uh, 10 pearls already. I know. Oh my I God. know. I know. We're going to have to have like a, a handout sheet at yeah. the end of this for everyone. So I thought this was really fascinating. So as I was preparing the questions for this discussion, I came across this statistic where it was, when parents are asked, is your child a picky eater? The prevalence of that can be very, very high, like in some studies over 50%. But when you use more stringent definitions of picky, it may be a lot less or even down to 5% according to a couple studies that have been published. So, you know, as we start talking more about picky eating, how do you actually define it? There is no accepted definition of picky eating, which is uh, part of the problem. The way I think about it is uh, we lump them into two groups. One is a child that just doesn't eat enough of of anything. I I don't know if we want to call that picky eating. Yes, it is a problem. Yes, we need to take care of it. The other three groups are uh, regarding uh, specific groups of foods or or foods themselves. So the first is not willing to accept uh, new foods. So that's neophobia. The second thing is not accepting groups of foods, right? No, Not eating any fruits or vegetables or whatever else it is. And the last one is uh, when they want it made in a particular sort of way, like the kid that will only eat McDonald's fries or Chick-fil-A French fries. That is not that important from an overall nutrition perspective. But the problem is those kids 
don't eat fruits and vegetables as well. And so I think I think as far as we are concerned, we should focus on a food group definition, which is a kid doesn't eat a food group. And what do we do with that kid? So if we use, uh, like you said, stringent definitions and ones that matter to us, I think 10% is a reasonable number to think about. So a lot of parents who think their kids are picky are actually just, they're probably just having normal age-appropriate behaviors. Correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and also, uh, when does picky eating become something else, right? Yeah. And uh, I, I like to think about picky eating versus pediatric feeding disorder and Picky eating is just that. It hasn't led to any dysfunction. I see. Okay. Okay. So from the perspective of uh, the medical team, so let's say you referred a four-year-old, maybe a girl who comes because of concerns about her her eating behaviors. And, uh, you know, I guess starting from the very beginning, like what's your approach when you meet with the family and start to evaluate this child? Wait, wait a second. Did yeah. you you turn it into a girl? So are you trying to get like personal advice for yeah. Emma? I was about right to now? say a girl who's named Emma who will only eat uh, noodles and you know, but I stopped myself. So <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Uh, let's keep it clarify. broad. Let's keep it broad. Okay, yes. we'll keep it broad. Sorry. So I think I I think there are two major pieces: growth and nutrition. And so the first step is, is this child growing well and or, or not? So that has to be done in everybody. You have to remember that just because the child is growing well doesn't mean that the child's nutrition status is great. So we'll separate those two pieces out. Once uh, I'm trying to get into picky eating, I'm looking at low-hanging fruit. The first is, is the child grazing, which means the child has access to food all the time, uh, doesn't sit in a specific place and eat at, we like three-hourly intervals, two and a half to three hours is a great amount of time to actually let the child get hungry to eat. The second thing is beverage consumption, which is inappropriate. So juice is a big problem. Any sugar-sweetened beverage is generally a problem. The other is, for the most part, children should drink water and milk. We like milk with meals and water in between meals. In some children, we will stop water consumption about 30 minutes before a meal just so that the water exits the stomach as well. These I think of as really low-hanging fruit that you can easily address. Then I start thinking about food groups. So food groups, uh, the major food groups, I tend to lump vegetables and fruits because that's an artificial definition, right? Is a tomato, fruit, or a vegetable? I don't particularly care. They give you the same, <laughs> they give you the same nutrition at the end of the day. Grains are almost never a problem. We have to remember that the Native Americans lived pretty much a grain-free life. Mm-hmm. So, and that's okay. Uh, the, uh, the other two groups are milk and uh, meat or high-protein foods. Uh, the, the issue with milk is when a child doesn't take milk, it's quite hard to replace it in its entirety, especially with regard to, to calcium. You can replace milk with the other milk products, which is cheese and yogurt and those kinds of things. But if a child completely avoids that group, it's it's pretty tough. You can use calcium-fortified orange juice, but that can hit you in another way because juice can take the place of food. Meat is another important item. And uh, the issue is, apart from a variety of things, iron and zinc are uh, pretty much only found in meat. You'll have to eat a pound of spinach to get the same amount of iron. So that can be really hard. The other thing is vegan children can lack vitamin B12. 
So one other thing I ask about is a boxed cereal. At least in the US, uh, the regular box cereals, Cheerios and the like, even the sweeter ones, they tend to have many of the vitamins and they tend to have iron, not so much zinc. So that can be a cheat way of getting iron and a variety of vitamins into a child that's very, very picky. Um, and then finally, I think about EOE. So EOE, the classic things, right? An atopic child, especially with food allergies and uh, vomiting. So those are the ones that we all think about. But one other thing to think about is a child that did not uh, tolerate cow's milk as a baby. So babies that were on, you know, your favorite hydrolysate formula, nutrigen alimentum, whatever, uh, though a lot of babies are inappropriately switched to those formulas. But when there's blood in the stool, uh, you need to think about whether this kid could then have EOE. The other problem is there seems to be a higher instance of EOE in autism. And so that's something to keep in mind. This doesn't mean that you scope everybody with autism, but it's something you have to keep at the back of your mind that this could be EOE. So that is my overarching way of thinking about children who show up with picky eating. So it sounds like, you know, get a good history, get some good anthropometrics, monitor their growth over time. And I was hoping you could expand a little bit more on that testing piece. You know, you mentioned EOE. So in some of our children, we may need to do additional testing, such as endoscopy or other lab tests. Can you walk us through your approach for that? I don't particularly care for labs very much. So one test that I will frequently do is iron in its various forms. So hemoglobin, ferritin, blah, blah, blah. The reason for this is uh, most nutrient deficiencies can be treated with a complete multivitamin if you can get one into the child. The only one practically that you can give parenterally is, uh, is iron. So rarely I've resorted to IV iron, but I see the worst of the worst. So uh, I'm not suggesting that every child should be given IV iron, but something to keep at the back of your mind. Yes, you can give B12 as well parenterally, but B12 deficiency is not that common. So the other common, def relatively common deficiencies, they're not common, but when a child does not eat anything in the fruit and vegetable range, does not get a multivitamin, does not get a fortified beverage, one other thing that has been described in very, very limited diets is scurvy. So vitamin C deficiency is something to keep in mind. The other one is a vitamin A deficiency. We've seen some. Again, these are kids that are eating three foods, uh, weird foods, typically uh, drinking Pepsi and eating some French fries, and that's about it, right? So then those kids can have vitamin C or vitamin A deficiency. But if they don't have any overt symptoms, your, your aim is to treat whatever they got without worrying about what it is that they may have. For example, I saw a kid who was just eating like honey buns and, uh, and drinking some dilute tea. And he was developing some lesions in his mouth. And we went about putting in a G-tube in him and giving him a high-calorie beverage and he was fine. I'm sure he had riboflavin or some other B-complex vitamin deficiency. But how important is it to diagnose it if I'm going to treat it? I don't do an EGD in everybody. So I think about those things that I talked about. Atopic children, especially kids with food allergies, yes. The other thing is, if they are going to go through some sort of intensive feeding program, I think they should get uh, an endoscopy before that because, you know, you want to know what you're dealing with. 
The third thing is uh, in autism, I have a lower threshold than in children without autism. Again, I'm I'm not scoping everybody while they are uh, when they have a feeding disorder. The other thing to think about is tell the parents if your kid is going to get his tonsils or going to get ear tubes out, let's do it at the same time. The final thing is if I'm going to put in a G tube in a child, I use that to get biopsies from the esophagus as well because oftentimes. Even if we did extensive therapy on somebody that needs a G-tube, they will probably still need the G-tube. So I just want to know if they have EOE at the time they get the G-tube so that I can then take care of them. The other thing to think about is it's not so much lab testing, but the younger the child, the more likely that they will need some sort of feeding evaluation. So consider that in your things that you need to do. More than a swallow study, I like to decide on a swallow study with a feeding therapist as opposed to by myself. Of course, if you see a child that coughs every time he drinks water or drinks milk, that's a slam dunk. You need a swallow study. But many other children don't need a swallow study. And so if you work with a feeding therapist that can help you, then that's whom I would trust and decide whether you need a swallow study with, with that person. Oh man, that's so the first thing I heard was even the board exams care. (laughs) Just kidding. We may not need to test for all of those water soluble vitamin deficiencies. (laughs) Correct. So I think I think if a kid comes in with you know uh, a fracture and and has uh, bleeding gums, I'm going to test for scurvy. Okay. Yeah. But we are going to see scurvy three times in a whole career. So testing the other thousand times, and these labs are expensive. They're hard to interpret. So just think about that before you order them. Yeah. Like the example you gave, you know, so clearly that kid has a very, very limited diet. So really, you already know what the problem is and what you're going to do. Yeah, I'm going to fix it. Right, right. Yeah. And if that problem persists, despite fixing that, then maybe we need to do additional testing at that point. Right. A kid... Well, we we had a kid who almost went blind, and that uh, this is from vitamin A deficiency. That kid, you want to prove that he has vitamin A deficiency and actually treat it aggressively, as opposed mm-hmm. to just doing a vitamin. I'm not talking about those children. I'm talking about yeah. the garden variety, or even the slightly severe picky eater that shows up in our clinics every day. I just have a side question, a uh, little side quest, if you will. Uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, well, something that I think uh, when you came to us and has kind of changed our practice a little bit. So I know you mentioned, you said G-tube. And like, I think in the past, we'll off, we oftentimes had this thought like, oh, we should put an NG in and see if they tolerate it and that kind of thing. And I mean, what's your thought for like a picky eater where it has impacted, you know, maybe their uh, growth and led to other symptoms and complications? Is it, uh, is your thinking like scope G-tube placement? So, uh, no. (laughs) Uh, I think the child should have pediatric feeding disorder and meet a variety of criteria. You should have done several things before you go to a G-tube. The other thing is the underlying problem. If the child will respond to uh, your initial changes, then clearly the child doesn't need a G-tube. But a child who has very severe autism and is eating three things, that child may benefit from a G-tube sooner rather than later. I don't like nasogastric tubes in these kinds of children because I want to know if there is a temporary reason for something. If something somebody needs something temporarily, yeah, fine. An NG mm-hmm. tube's fine. But if something's going to be semi-permanent or permanent, I think we should we should be thinking about G-tubes more than NG tubes. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. 
I wanted to take a step back because, you know, you mentioned the endoscopy, if there's going to be a uh, feeding disorder evaluation and maybe getting some labs. But in general, it sounds like the approach is really interventional, like making changes. But a lot of times by the time parents have gotten to the pediatric gastroenterologist, they may be convinced that, oh my gosh, something is wrong. So how do you have that conversation with the family? Well, in my experience with this group, Parents typically are uh, not looking for investigations. Uh, the converse is true. I want to scope some of these children and the parents <laughs> don't want them to be scoped. So that seems to be the usual problem. But if they're really fixated on testing, I try to do something that is not uh, interventional and is not going to harm the child. I typically send them to a feeding therapist. So, And that is helpful because sometimes you didn't think that the child had a problem, but the child does have a problem and some degree of therapy might help the child as well. Love it. So, okay, moving on a little bit to what do we do about this? So I guess maybe we'll start with some basic stuff that even the lowly pediatric gastroenterologist who doesn't specialize in this uh, that they can use. So for someone like me or Jen, we're in GI clinic or already running a little bit late, we're kind of busy. We see this patient with picky eating. You already alluded to some of them, but what are like your uh, favorite practical tips and recommendations and maybe some resources that families can use? Well, again, thinking about the low-hanging fruit, you want children to be fed every three hourly. And at least in the West and especially in the US, they are fed in a high chair and not given anything in between. So that's, that's a cornerstone of therapy. The second thing is cut out juice and cut out anything else that they are uh, drinking. The The third thing is an appropriate amount of milk. So 16 to 24 ounces of milk. If there's problems with the weight gain, then whole milk as opposed to 2% or skim or whatever else. The other thing that is quite easy to do is a multivitamin. And when you use a multivitamin, in this country, you can look for a complete multivitamin, which is uh, usually a tablet form. The gummies, as you can imagine, it's harder to put metals in gummies, so they don't tend to have as much iron and zinc in them. So uh, we try to push the tablets. If they can crush them and put them in uh, something that's pureed, yogurt, applesauce, something like that is useful. There are some liquid vitamins, but iron, once it gets into a liquid, really tastes uh, irony, right? <laughs> and so that's uh, that can be hard for children to take. And sometimes you play around with these and try and get the child to accept a, a vitamin of some sort. The other thing to think about is in mild picky eaters, we need to think about Ellen Satter's division of responsibility. The, the parent's job is to decide what, when, and where a child eats. And the child's job is to decide whether to eat something and how much he or she is going to eat. This works in regular old kids, right? But I'm not talking about severely developmentally delayed children, children with autism and stuff like that. So that's the overarching approach to managing many picky eaters. Then, uh, you again, we talked about we talked about the food groups. So what do we think about with each of the food groups? Uh, if a child is completely vegan but is growing well, think about B12. That will be corrected with a vitamin. A child that's not eating meat, think about how you're going to replace uh, 
replace iron and zinc again a multivitamin if a child eats fruits but doesn't eat vegetables that doesn't bother me very much a child that's not drinking milk but is eating yogurt and cheese you don't really need to worry about that you might need to increase that a little bit more and uh, sometimes you can use calcium fortified orange juice as well so those are like basic things for most picky eaters There are three don'ts that I want to talk about. The first is not every child requires a high calorie beverage. By this I mean a 30 calorie per ounce beverage which is a 1 calorie per ml beverage. Um and I will just say Pediasure because that's the one that most people are familiar with. The the issue is when a child eats a little bit but doesn't re- really require the calories. If you put the child on a on a 1 calorie per ml beverage, the child is just going to stop eating. or eat far less of the things that he needs to eat. I see this as a problem typically between 12 and 18 months of age where the baby has to get off uh, infant formula. A lot of times these babies are on formula and uh, the parents question is should I put this kid on whole milk? And the baby is really eating like small amounts of pureed foods at a year but is growing okay. So what do you do? You just continue with the uh, infant formula until uh 18 months or so and that way the baby can expand his diet. The second thing is I think hunger manipulation is a good idea in many of these children. Uh, by that I mean two things. One is getting the child to be hungry for the next meal or snack, which is the 3-hour limit and that's regular. I don't even consider that hunger manipulation, but it is a part of that. Don't push that. Don't push that to six and eight hours because little children can get uh, hypoglycemic or ketotic. When you get ketotic, you don't your appetite actually goes down. And parents will often tell you, "I withheld stuff from my child for six or eight hours, and the child didn't eat." So then you throw that out the window, and that child probably has some developmental issue that's preventing the child from eating. And sometimes when I get the kids to Q three hour meals, I will actually use periactin to convince the parents that the child will actually eat because they're worried that the child will stop eating so you can give them the double whammy of putting them on on <laughs> regimented meals and snacks and giving them an increased appetite and sometimes that can work the last thing that i want to caution people about is uh, in the child uh, just drinks pepsi and uh, or let's say he drinks some orange juice and eats french fries don't add the vitamin to the orange juice the child mm-hmm. might stop drinking the orange juice so in kids with very very limited diets think before you add things to the things they ex- accept. Well, and then do you have any online resources that maybe you send them home with or any websites that you prefer? So, I try to keep what I tell parents very limited because they tend to read a lot and they get confused and i also want to be equitable with regard to parents who don't read a lot and i find less is better but i do think that pediatric gastroenterologists should pick at least one book on picky eating and read it because there are so many if this then that scenarios that is impossible to go through a podcast and and you need to know if my child does x what do you recommend and so it, to be able to recommend with confidence reading a book is not a bad idea what books so any of ellen satter's uh, books would be good uh, i also like a nicely named book called broccoli bootcamp <laughs> then uh, jill castle is a dietitian who has written some books as well 
I don't think you need to buy a whole bunch of books. Uh, just reading one of them is probably very helpful, uh, both as young parents, because many pediatric gastroenterologists also have have young children, and also to be able to provide the right advice at the right time. Oh, man, so good. We'll put some links in the show notes for our listeners. That's a good idea. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, the thing I didn't hear is bribing. If you take a bite of this, then you're <laughs> oh, going to get this. So the, the, there's, there was an interesting study which showed that if you eat this piece of broccoli, then you get this piece of dessert. It actually doesn't make them more likely to accept the broccoli. It makes them want the dessert more. Oh, interesting. So, therefore, using food as a reward doesn't really work. Uh, Non-food rewards may work better than ah, food rewards. Ooh, interesting. So, like, we can continue listening to this Cocomelon song if you finish your dinner. Correct, yes. Okay. And making it very, uh, like, little kids want their uh, reward immediately. So, yeah. basically, you take two bites of this and you can listen to 15 more <laughs> seconds of this. So, that kind of stuff that we use in the feeding program. Good. I'm glad you did not shut down bribery altogether. And no, I will continue not. to do that. Okay, so, uh, you know, some of us are very lucky to be working hand-in-hand with dietitians, but dietitians may not be available for every GI clinic. So when do you bring in the expertise of a registered dietitian? There are three things that make picky eater have pediatric feeding disorder. The first is malnutrition, no matter how you define it, right? The second is very decreased dietary diversity. This is the food group story that I was talking about that makes you worried. And the third is the need for a high-calorie beverage or need for G-tube feeds. This, The G-tube feeds is not really a picky eater. It's something else, right? Again, not all of these kids will end up with a dietitian. So if you do all the simple things that I talked about and the kid is not moving in the right direction, you absolutely need a dietitian. The, the other thing is I really believe that PSGI practices should advocate for dietitians to work with them. We have to remember that we are NASPGAN and the last N is nutrition. It is vitally important. So that's my plug for dietitians. Awesome. So a question about another like specific strategy. So food logs, is that something that you recommend? Is that something that's helpful? Or what scenario? What, how do you do that? I don't really use food logs very much, except in very, very specific scenarios. When they bring them, it's very, very useful because you can quickly see three days worth and look at them and say, yeah, this kid is not getting this or is drinking juice or whatever else. It's very helpful. The other thing is I dissuade parents from keeping very detailed uh, food logs. Parents now bring Excel spreadsheets and that kind of stuff. And I think it increases anxiety on their part. So I do a very quick dietary call and go from there. The only time I use food logs is they bring them in. I think if you work very uh, separately from a dietitian and you want her or him to have access to something, then you can have the parents keep food logs for three days. They, They don't need to be very precise because the dietitian can always go through more detail and flesh out the details from the food log. 
So it sounds like if they were to keep a food log, probably doesn't need to be any more than three days. Absolutely. Okay. Anything more than three days is... Uh, we, we also have to think about how much anxiety we're causing right. our parents. So the longer you make these things, the parents get more and more freaked out. Yeah. And I never tell parents to count calories. So sure. And mm, I never give point. parents a calorie goal because <clears throat> if a child's eating by mouth and will only take... 840 calories and you want the child to consume a thousand, how are you going to make up that 160 and what are you going to tell the parents? So I just don't worry about telling parents calorie goals. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Okay. So we've mentioned the multidisciplinary clinic a few times. So we're moving beyond just a normal picky eater who's pretty mild to somebody who may be a little bit more severe. So when do you start thinking about making that referral Number one is there are very few multidisciplinary clinics in the country. Uh, When you look at intensive programs, there are about 20 throughout the country. So not everybody has access to them. But then again, I would like to bring up the definition of uh, pediatric feeding disorder. There are three or four things you need to consider. The first is the nutrition, those three pieces that I talked about. Uh, If any of those are severe, then uh, a multidisciplinary program really makes sense. The second thing is if despite working with a feeding therapist, the child still requires modification of food or modification of the way the child is being fed. By that I mean uh, if you have to thicken feeds, if you have to cut foods really small, if you have to pace a child or feed a child with a specific spoon in a particular way, then those are all signs that there is a feeding skill-based problem. And if despite working with a therapist, things are not moving in the right direction, that's another reason. The last one is when there's severe psychosocial distress that is not able to be dealt with, then that is another cause for referral to the feeding program as well. I mean, I think we... I'll have some idea, maybe some of the components of a multidisciplinary feeding clinic, but what does that actually look like? What's like that first visit like for the family and, you know, kind of what's your strategy after that initial visit and evaluation? Uh, This varies a little bit, but what makes a multidisciplinary program a multidisciplinary program is that they have many disciplines. So basically, you need somebody that's going to assess the medical piece. You need somebody that's going to assess the nutrition piece. You need somebody that's going to assess the feeding skill piece and then the psychological piece. Other people are important as well, such as uh, nurses and uh, social workers and the like. They are also important. So in our program, typically when they come in, we we have a one-way mirror. So the physician and the dietitian go in and see the child, and then the child is actually fed by our feeding therapist with the psychologist at the side. And then our uh, social worker goes in at the end, at the end of this one hour session we uh, while this is going on we are also talking behind the one way mirror and trying to decide what we are going to do and then we bring the family to our side and then present them with a holistic plan so that's what ends up happening we do a variety of things so from a medical perspective it could be something as simple as uh, your child needs periactin uh, which is ciproheptadine or your child needs an endoscopy to all the way to your child needs a g-tube the the dietitian uh, typically does her own thing says you know, this is how we're going to change your child's nutrition. The feeding therapist assesses for feeding skill, uh, makes some changes to 
food being presented or recommends further therapy. And the psychologist does the same, comes up with a feeding plan and suggests more therapy. The social worker looks for other holes in the family's life and how we can work together as a team to make this happen. So that's what ends up happening. Wow. That's not actually what I thought happened. <laughs> a one-way mirror. Jen, did you know, did you know that? No, I didn't know there was a one-way mirror. Fascinating. Yeah, well, the one-way mirror is also used during the intensive program because uh, the initially a member from the team is feeding the child and uh-huh. the and the parent is on the other side being told what's happening. I see. Thereafter, we then move the parent to the to the therapist role, uh, the feeder role, and typically they have a bug in the ear, you know, uh, wow. uh, through which they are coached yeah. to feed their child. That's crazy. That's really cool. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I li- I think it's neat because a lot of people need to be watching, but for a child, that's going right. to be really scary if right. you're just sitting in a little table and 10 adults standing around you staring down at you. But at least in this instance, it's more comfortable for them. Correct. And, you know, children, um, when they brought outside the home, react differently. And if you have 10 people in the room, it makes it really, really hard yeah. for them to yeah. do their usual behavior or close to usual. I have, a, sure. I have another bonus question. Yep. So <laughs> I also before, have one. <laughs> oh, man. I, feel, I mean, we could go on for a long time. Yeah. But um, I suspect, I feel like a lot of fellows, maybe residents and junior faculty will be inspired by your wise words. And, you know, for like someone who's coming up and is interested in this topic, like picky eating, nutrition, I know that you've done a lot of work within NASPGAN. Like, what are some of the opportunities, maybe committees, like things that they can get involved in that would help kind of then develop this passion? I think I started out as a guy that just did nutrition. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I learned things from other people. So I learned a lot of the nutrition I know from dietitians. And I think that's a very symbiotic relationship. What I learned about feeding, I learned from my other colleagues. So Mm -hmm. I learned from a feeding therapist and from a from psychologists. So you have to actually go out and seek this kind of knowledge because feeding is not covered even in pediatric textbooks to an extent that is helpful. So you actually have to go looking for this stuff. And funnily enough, there's, there's many ways of thinking about this. You need to understand the physiological mechanisms and what is the pathophysiology of dysphagia and feeding disorder. So you have to teach that to yourself or find a feeding therapist that's going to teach you that. Uh, the other thing is the 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 day-to-day bread and butter feeding issues like, you know, do I offer my kid ice cream after broccoli? You you're almost better off learning that from these books that uh-huh. teach you that they're not necessarily meant for us, but they usually have scientific backing to whatever they're saying. I mean, if they don't have references at the back that actually quote, you know, regular journals, I would be suspicious of that book. But that's the other thing. And finally, working with psychologists and see what they do. You can't replicate what all these people do, but you can incorporate things that they do into your day to day life. And I know you've been involved in the uh, like NTU and tell, what's 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 that? So NTU is Naspagan Nutrition University. Now it's been going on for uh, 
probably definitely over 10 years probably closer to 15 it is a great program for third year fellows and for uh, young faculty i think young faculty is defined as less than five or ten years out of fellowship and it is a two-day program it's typically in chicago you start on friday evening and then friday evening is kind of like a get to know that there is a lecture there's jeopardy there's dinner and then there's like a you know, mixer. And then Saturday is the meat of the program. It is actually one hour sessions where people go through case-based learning. And there are just 10 or 12 learners around this table. And it is it is great because the, the small group learning is really, really helpful and gets a lot of doubts out of people's heads. And we go through a variety of cases. So you you go away from this program getting the nuts and bolts of nutrition and you are able to interact with uh, some really good nutrition faculty and also make uh, nutrition friends for for a long period of time. So I would highly recommend it. The process to get in is competitive, especially for third-year fellows because we have about 100 of them, right? So about 30 of them are picked. Uh, but young faculty that tends to be less competition. So if you haven't attended and you are within... I can't remember five years, I'm going to say, then you should consider applying. Awesome. So I was going to take this a completely different way. Another bonus <laughs> question. One of my favorite things about mealtime, and this was something that I really picked up as I became a parent of my own, and it's really about making food fun. And you had mentioned introducing, you know, something eight different times. And so I'm just wondering what some of your tips. So just some background. One of our fellows and colleagues were texting Peter and me yesterday about a new restaurant in Columbus <laughs> where there's sushi that's on like a conveyor belt that goes around and you can choose it. And there's a TikTok trend that happened a few months ago about parents using a train to deliver different types of food to their toddlers to make mealtimes fun. And my favorite thing as a kid, my kids hated peas until we started calling them polka dots. And I was like, oh, yeah, you just eat one polka dot today and two polka dots tomorrow. And look, your plate has polka dots. And just I was so shocked as a parent how doing little things like that really made a difference in what they were willing to try. So what are your favorite tips in that regard, making mealtimes fun? Well, since you brought up conveyor belt sushi, I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you, we went to Japan some years ago and the only bad meal I've had was what? conveyor belt sushi. Oh, man. So, so it's a gimmick. Don't fall, <laughs> don't, don't fall for it. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the other thing is, I think I think parents have limited time during meals. I think there are many ways to make meals fun and I think calling peas polka dots is definitely fine. I think the bigger trend is to hide the spinach in in ravioli oh, yeah. or whatever yeah, else and and you know there are books written about this stuff but I think many experts would agree with me that you should just present the food to kids as is like I'm not saying you shouldn't dress up the spinach but hiding it somewhere else doesn't really teach the child anything 
for me, uh, my children are now adults. And what I did was with every vegetable, I worked through a bunch of recipes. I'm also the cook at home. Uh, until we had at least one recipe for every vegetable that my ch- children would accept. And so mm. now my children eat all vegetables. Uh, and so that was something that I did. I, I don't know if that works for everybody, but that that was a way. And I think the other thing is new, uh, meals are really, really important, not just to get your children to eat, but it's where we bond. And uh, even while my children were growing up, uh, especially in high school, we always sat together and had meals. We also kicked out phones and uh, everything else. So dinners have to be appliance-free. I think that's really, really important. We still follow that uh, in in restaurants, even though my children are adults. And I think it leads to better, better meal times. Oh, man. So yesterday, <clears throat> I feel like I have a confession. So Leslie was had a, meet, a late meeting, and I had to feed Emma, and uh, she did not eat what I gave her. I took a look. It was like spinach nuggets that were like half frozen, two slices of cheese, and like a couple of meatballs that were left over. And then like afterwards, I looked at it. I was like, I don't want to eat that either. I think it's just, oh, man. Yeah. I, uh, I yeah, need to I, do better. I took it upon myself as a mission to make food from scratch. Yeah. It helped that I grew up in India and I have uh, never eaten a frozen dinner. Yeah. Uh, and so I think my kids are that way. They they asked for a Lunchable once and they took it and I think they decided that it was terrible. <laughs> and so that's how, that's how uh, I won. But there are many battles in life. So you have to figure out which battles you're going to fight. Right. Also... It is not important that a child eat everything at every meal. It is important that over a week or something that that a child has eaten all the things that one would expect that child to eat. So that's another thing to remember as well. The the Mm -hmm. final thing is I didn't bother about what they ate when we were out. When, when it was a party or a restaurant, I just let them run wild. Because that's not the time you want to be enforcing your rules. Yeah. I like that. I love that. Okay, wait, I have a tip. Last tip before we move to our takeaways. So th- <laughs> I got this on, I'm on, I also love to cook, Praveen, and I have this cooking Facebook group that I'm on. And this, one of the frustrations when you go to websites that have recipes is there's a lot of like blogs. So there's all this text and you have to scroll to get to the bottom. There's actually a new cheat where if you type cooked.wiki forward slash in front of the website, it takes out all of the text and it just skims it down to the recipe. What? <laughs> so if anyone is interested in that, I just learned it yesterday. It It is amazing. Cooked. Is that going to download like a bunch of virus? I feel like this is, uh, that's so weird. No, you know me with the text stuff. I have to keep up with this kind of yeah. thing. It's just like turns the website into a wiki so it trims it down so wow. that you can just have the recipe i mean the other you know like i don't cook a lot but uh when i've done that like you know if you just go to straight to like uh, print the recipe then it just goes to like just the recipe yeah but some of the older ones like i uh, i made uh bagels from scratch there's a sophisticated wow. bagel recipe that's so good but you it's before they had that jump to recipe button oh, and so yeah, you have to scroll yeah. oh, <laughs> so. Man. so i'm i'm also a big fan of people cooking at home 
And one of the books that really helped me is uh, Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything. And so mm. the reason the reason that this is helpful is because it tells you how to cook everything pretty much. Like if you look up carrots, you'll get 50 different recipes. Most wow. of them are not crazy recipes. So that's that it can really be helpful when you're trying to do what I did, which is try to find a right. recipe of each vegetable that your children will eat. So uh, I would and the recipes are not crazy. So that's a plug for uh, Mark Bitman's book. It's a classic. All right. We'll put it in the show notes. So as we said, we could go on forever, but we have to eventually end it. What are your three top takeaways from all the different amazing tips you just gave us? I've been thinking about this. So I think one very important thing is that growth and feeding should be assessed separately. So just because a child is growing well doesn't mean he or she is getting everything. And the... Second thing is most children don't need extensive testing. Mm. Uh, But keep in mind that an endoscopy may be needed. Not too much, not too little. Something, uh, Something in between. And you'll figure it out as you do this. The last thing is if you can get a complete multivitamin into a kid, at least you won't need to worry about the major nutrient deficiencies. So those are my three big uh, takeaways. Excellent. And as we're closing the episode, Praveen, if you look back on your career, what has been the most valuable advice that you've received and what advice do you have for our listeners? I thought about this a lot uh, and uh, it's hard because you receive lots of pieces of advice. I think two things that have really helped me, not necessarily advice, but what has happened is surround yourself with a good team. So uh, in my case, it's nurses, dietitians, uh, feeding therapists, and psychologists. Your teams may, may look a little different. The other thing is grab, take hold of the moment. Uh, sometimes uh, life should not be completely planned. You think you have a plan, but something else shows up and it may be the right thing for you. And you won't know it's the right thing until 15 years after. So don't be afraid of of, uh, switching tracks and doing whatever else that shows up in your path. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us once again. We'll have to do another part two. Thank you. So good. This was great. Thanks. What an awesome time with Dr. Gaudet. Yep. We thought it would be a home run, and it was, because he is incredible. And, and you know what? Unlike Muhammad, who was late for his episode, oh, Praveen was early. Wow, that is harsh. He was early. <laughs> Sorry. He was uh, <laughs> just creeping outside my office. Uh, oh, no. He was, uh, He was. yeah, anyway, appropriately a little bit early. All love to both of them. Um, anyway, uh, we hope you enjoyed listening as much as we did. If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter slash X and Instagram at, at Bowel Sounds and on Facebook at, at Pediatric GI Podcast. We may have mentioned this before, but the reason why the handle on Facebook is different is because they flagged Bowel Sounds as inappropriate, so we couldn't get that, that username. Anyways, uh, uh, yeah, so, so much inappropriate us. content. Um, if you like what you heard and you want to support the podcast, it help us out if you do all or one of the following three things. Tell someone about the podcast, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover the podcast, and on the Buzzsprout page, you can support the show by making a donation to the foundation, which is the Naspigan Foundation. You can get there through www.naspgha.n.org. 
The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the foundation is doing, including supporting GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. And if you're so inclined, also check out our merchandise store. The link is in the show notes and also on our socials. And buy stuff from us. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.